Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, three scholars from Russia are studying Florida writer Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Hurston, that was my new discovery of the uh, of America, you know, really, and that was so, so different. Remembering the African-American town of Gifford, Florida. It no longer exists there, but it was a frame building. They had a big hall down the middle. The classrooms were on either side. Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Well, I heard the first verse that I got in my native village of Edenville, Florida, from George Thomas. And, uh, and, and one that you're gonna sing? I'm going to sing, oh, I guess all the, the tune is the same. I'm going to sing verses from a whole lot of places. Cap got a mule, mule on the mound, call him Jerry. Cap got a mule, mule on the mound, call him Jerry. Gonna ride him down, Lord, Lord, I'm ride him down. I got a woman, she shake like jelly all over. I got a woman to shake like jelly all over. Ha, her hips so broad, Lord, Lord, her hips so broad. That's a recording of Zora Neale Hurston preserving a folk song she collected in Florida. Hurston's work as an anthropologist resulted in two books of folklore collections, and it informed her novels, including her most famous work, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Since 1990, the historic town of Eatonville has celebrated the legacy of its most famous resident with the annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Growing up in the first incorporated African-American municipality in the United States had a profound impact on Hurston and her work. The influence of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston reaches far beyond her adopted hometown of Eatonville, Irina Morozova is professor of literature at Russian State University for the Humanities in Moscow. She explains how she first encountered the work of Zora Neale Hurston. It was uh, during my Fulbright scholarship uh, here at the UCF, and I attended uh, uh, classes uh, of Anna Lilis, Dr. Anna Lilis. And uh, so, um, you know, I heard this name and, uh, you know, I heard the discussion of the students. And I decided that probably that is the first time in my life I hear this name. So I decided to go to the library and to read. First of all, of course, the Rise Away Watching God. And I was really, really impressed. And I that was a kind of uh, very unpleasant surprise for me that nobody in Russia that time uh, even not so many scholars knew about Zora Neale Hurston. And so I decided to represent uh, her creations to um, a Russian 
um, not probably wide public audience, uh, you know, the reading audience, but at least to, to the student uh, audience. When Morozova returned to Russia from Central Florida in 2001, she could only find a handful of obscure references to Zora Neale Hurston on the Russian Internet. Morozova decided that she needed to introduce Russian students to Hurston's work. She was particularly drawn to Their Eyes Were Watching God because it had a different approach to African-American identity from the other work of African-American writers Morozova had been exposed to. Because, you know, I was raised in Soviet school, in Soviet university, and that time uh, our favorite uh, African-American writers were like Richard Wright, uh, James Baldwin, uh, you know, all these writers with social revolt, protests, and so on uh, and so forth. And I thought that all African-American literature is like that. So uh, Zora Hurston, that was my new discovery of the uh, of America, you know, really. And that was so, so different. So, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I decided that I need to do something with that. <laughs> The novel Their Eyes Were Watching God includes a fictionalized account of the founding of Edenville, America's first incorporated African-American town. Irina Morozova didn't realize that Eatonville was a real place when she first read the book. Yes, exactly. I thought that that was totally uh, fictional. You know, that time I know knew nothing about uh, African-American communities even, and only, uh, you know, as usually the uh, scholar uh, or teacher uh, does, I uh, read several books on it, and I realized that Eatonville was real. So I asked, uh, you know, the Dean uh, Fernandez to bring me something, and, you know, uh, he and Anna Lillis invited me the next year to the festival, uh, you know, and that was the first time I saw that Eatonville was real. Since discovering Hurston's work more than a decade ago, Morozova has taught classes on it, presented her research at conferences in Russia, and is writing the introduction for a new Russian translation of selected Hurston stories. I uh, was really pleased uh, by the decision of the chief editor of our main uh, magazine uh, of uh, foreign literature, uh, they translated three short stories of Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, next year it will be published in Russian. That will be the first publication of Zora Neale Hurston in Russian. And I was invited to write an article, uh, not an article, but just an introduction to, uh, you know, to Russian public. In an attempt to preserve rural African-American speech patterns of the early 20th century, Hurston wrote much of her work reflecting the way people actually spoke. Many of Morozova's students speak English, but even people with English as a first language can have difficulty understanding Hurston's dialect. Working in cooperation with students from UCF, Morozova's students have developed online assistance for understanding Hurston's writing. It depends on the English proficiency of my students, you know. If I see that the group is very strong, I mean, you know, up uh, or more a little bit than advanced, I mean, uh, so they can read the text. Because the main problem is uh, the folk talk. And the first time we took this project, I asked Annalilias uh, to, uh, you know, to help us. And one of her students uh, recorded some parts of these folk talks, you know. So when my students hear it, it was pretty clear to understand what, you know, is written. <laughs> Anna Smirnova is a graduate student under Irina Morozova at the Russian State University for the Humanities. 
Smirnova specializes in American literature and culture. A primary focus of her work is Zora Neale Hurston and her influence on modern African American writers. Well, in my opinion,、uh, Zora Neale Hurston、um, some kind、uh, stands apart to、uh, uh, other African American uh, writers because,、uh, uh, as Irina Morozova told, um, uh, she um, she uh, writes not about.、Uh, Some kind of social problems, but about、uh, real life uh, of uh, African Americans, about their everyday life, which is very important. And uh, uh, you know, the atmosphere of her works、uh, is really amazing because、uh, uh, this vernacular language、uh, it make it、um, more you know it make it realistic on the one hand, but、uh, there are some. Stories、uh, and the, there are some parts of the of the novels of her works、uh, that are really can be regarded as、uh, part of a tale of or part of a myth. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's very interesting for me. <laughs> Although she comes from a very different culture and time period, Smirnova says she relates to Janie Crawford and the other characters in Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, when I was reading, their eyes were watching out.、Uh, for some time,、uh, I even、uh, forgot that it is about African American because、uh, it's very.、Uh, it is about women, and as as I am a woman, it's、uh, you know it's it was very very interesting to read. And uh, uh, she speaks、uh, of the fate uh, of uh, wi- wi- women. I'm sorry. Uh, In the society of、uh, that time, and、uh, I can compare it to the society of my、uh, culture and of my uh, uh, century, and、uh, it's really、uh, a lot. Anton Panov is also a student of Morozova's in Moscow. In addition to studying Zora Neale Hurston, Panov has done some fascinating research about Nancy Prince, an African American woman living and working in Imperial Russia. I became interested in this topic because first,、uh, I was、um, I really like the topic of early Russian American relations in the eighth no eighteenth.、Uh, Century, the beginnings of nineteenth century, and when、uh, Doctor Morozova told me about、um, Nancy Prince, that's the woman who came to Russia in eighteen twenty-four, I guess,、uh, I was really interested because、uh, you know this is kind of phenomena actually.、Uh, her husband was a servant on the imperial court, and、um, she. Went to Russia first without education, without just anything, without money, and here in Russia, in our country, she really became a woman. She、uh, realized herself as a person, and she even started her own business, which was you know, just impossible in、uh, the U.S. at that time. Nancy Prince wrote extensively about her impressions of Russia from an original and unique perspective. Anton Panov also studies Zora Neale Hurston. He believes that Russians and others around the world can learn much from Eatonville's sense of community, as documented in Hurston's work. Our towns or our villages, maybe villages, yeah, but our towns are not like that.、Uh, we don't, you know, have this deep love and care about our nearest and dearest, and this is what you know really impressed me here when I came.、Uh, It's not only about that、mm, everyone knows each other. 
everyone cares about each other. Uh, and I really liked it. And I think if there were you know, all the people in the world who will care, there would be no wars, no, no conflicts, and our two countries will overcome our problems. So, you know, but you know, I'm only in the start of my um, further research about African-American communities, but I think now that there is a lot more to, you know, to study here. Anton Panov's first trip to Eatonville was for the 24th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. He says the visit is helping him to better understand Hurston's work and the Florida community she writes so much about. So first, uh, I had the same feeling as Dr. Morozova had when she first read uh, The Rise of Russian Gods. The, the only difference that's uh, that I knew that Isabel was real because she said to me about that. But anyway, I had the strong feeling that this whole uh, town is absolutely uh, fictional. All the people there are fictional, and everything that happened there is also fictional because it was so idyllic. Uh, the town was, you know, like Eden-like place uh, with no conflicts, with no almost no crime, um, and. I thought that maybe I need to know when fiction ends and where the reality starts. And maybe this is the main purpose of my trip here. I want to know how this community of Edenville really looks like, what it feels like to be the part of this community. Uh, and maybe through this I can under understand uh, Zora Neale Hurston more. This is also Anna Smirnova's first visit to Eatonville. She was expecting to see Joe Clark's store with its lion porch, but was pleased with what she did find. Uh, it is much better than I have expected, you know, because um, um, I like the atmosphere of Eatonville because uh, it's very, very fr friendly. And um, all the people... It seems that uh, all the people know know each other, you know. And when I was reading uh, the novel, uh, I thought that it will be like this. Like uh, the, in Italy, it's a small town where everybody knows each other. But I was very uh, touched uh, that uh, I'm, you know, uh, there are the people from outside. And still, everybody treats me very nice, very hospitable. So um, thank you, <laughs> people of Italy, for that. This is the fourth time that Irina Morozova has attended the Zora Festival, so she's had an opportunity to meet the people of Eatonville and become familiar with the community. Uh, first of all, I need to say that uh, these four years are in the Eatonville has changed a lot. He became more clean, more, you know, some new buildings appeared, and that is just uh, an amazing fact because, you know, that is only four years. Not so, you know, a long period of time, but nevertheless, that is the first. The second one, you know, um, I've already told to, uh, to <laughs> the Eatonville community that the first time when I took uh, in my hands the book, I could never, never imagine in my life that I uh, and my students uh, would have a special dinner 
to honor us as their special guests. And I, I was really moved deep to, in my heart, you know, by um, people who brought their food and, you know, and that was really such a moving moment. One of the highlights of my being, you know, here in the USA. Irina Morozova, Anna Smirnova, and Anton Panov from the Russian State University for the Humanities participated in the 24th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in historic Eatonville, Florida. My little woman, she had a baby this morning. My little woman, she had a baby this morning. He had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Anna told her it must be the hellfire captain. Anna told her must be the hellfire captain. He had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A coo coo birds keep a hollering. Don't you hear them? A coo coo birds keep a hollering. It looks like rain. Lord, Lord, it looks like rain. I got a rainbow wrapped and tied around my shoulder. I got a rainbow. Wrapped and tied around my shoulder, it looked like rain. Lord, Lord, it looked like rain. I had me down two, three cans of tomatoes. Oh, had me down two, three cans of tomatoes, a can of corn. Lord, Lord, a can of corn. I got a woman, she's pretty but she's too bulldozing. I got a woman, she's pretty but she's too bulldozing. She won't live long, Lord, Lord, she won't live long. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to search our archive and classroom resources, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers. In the mid-20th century, Florida schools and towns were still racially segregated. Janie Gould talks with a longtime resident of Gifford, Florida. In the era of segregation, black children in Indian River County went to school in Fort Pierce. Then, in the 1920s, someone donated land along US-1 for a school in Gifford, north of Vero Beach. Eddie Hudson went to school there in the late 40s. It no longer exists there, but it was a framed building. They had a big hall down the middle. The classrooms were on either side, and the drinking fountain was like a cow's trough. And it was sulfur water, right? Yeah. We didn't have running water in Gifford. Either you drill your well yourself and put your 
pitcher pump on it, or some people in Gifford were able to have an artesian well drill, but they would charge the families of small feet to tap into it. What did you have? Uh, originally, we had our own well. Then when our neighbor had a company to come in and drill a, an artesian well, my father was able to come up with the $50 to tap. But you still didn't have inside no, running we, water? No, we did not have inside plumbing at all. What was school like? We had excellent teachers. The only problems, and I didn't learn this until after the fact that the books that we got were all, always used. The kids, of course, in town used those books first when they were new. You mean the Vero kids? Vero kids, yeah. There were never enough. God rest her soul, Mrs. Bernice Johnson. I think she had 35 kids in the class. She may have had 10 spellers and 15 math books. It hurt her so bad that some of us didn't get books to take home. She found out where each one of us lived because back then we didn't have street names. So we had to describe to her where we lived. The streets weren't named? No, with the signs on the streets. No, we didn't have them. So Mrs. Johnson was one of the teachers that would get uh, names where you lived. And if I lived near you, she would then give me a math book to take home and maybe give you a speller. If I had any math homework, I'd get it done. Then I would bring that book to you. By that time, you should have all your spelling words done, and you would then give me the speller. What about lunch at school? You had to pay for the lunch. How at, much? Um, I think it was 10 cents a day. With nine children in the Hudson family, school lunches were often out of the question. Their mother would make extra pancakes in the morning and send them to school in a bag. When lunchtime came, then we would all gather around. A more modern Gifford High School came along in the early 50s, but unlike Vero Beach High School, it didn't have labs or a gym at first. But Hudson has happy memories of growing up in Gifford. Kids played marbles and made their own toys. We'd make bird traps. We would take those birds home, clean them. My mother would uh, take the birds and, and cook a pot of rice and put the birds in it and make a meal. What kind of birds? Any kind that we could get. Bluebirds, redbird, cardinals, quail. Was this in your yard or in the oh, woods? Oh, no, we'd go out in the woods. I'm surprised that none of us really got bitten by snakes. Were you barefoot yeah. a lot of the time? Oh, yeah. I went to school barefoot sometimes. But we had fun. I mean, there was no life like it growing up. Eddie Hudson and a brother used to hunt rabbits, which congregated in culverts in citrus groves. Some guy told us that what you could do is get a big sack, put it on one end of the uh, culvert, and then get something like a fishing pole and run it down the, the other end. And the rabbits would run out and get into the sack. Rabbits, of course, provided meals for us as well. My mother used to put the batter on it and fry it like chicken. A couple of years ago, I went out to one of the supermarkets and bought some rabbit and made a rabbit meal out of it. Very delicious, lean, very nutritious. Did it bring back memories? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Eddie Hudson earned a doctorate in education. He retired in 1995 after 34 years as a teacher and administrator. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Three years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mandated integration of public accommodations, a group of Florida students were staging sit-ins to protest discrimination in Jacksonville. Bill Dudley has more. We knew what happened in other sit-in cities. We knew how people were viciously attacked. But it was still important that we 
confront the problem. We were committed to doing that. Retired college administrator and former Jacksonville City Council member Rodney Hurst. He's the winner of a bronze medal in the 2008 Florida Book Awards for It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, his personal account of the struggle for civil rights in early 1960s Jacksonville. Well, I think the audience for the book is anyone who wants information about what those days were like certainly from Jacksonville, but in the state of Florida. By 1960, under Mayor Hayden Burns, then serving the fourth of five terms in office, Jacksonville's skyline had sprouted new insurance company skyscrapers, a courthouse, and a civic center. But the city was called one of the most segregated in America. One man who wanted change was a charismatic eighth-grade history teacher, Rutledge Pearson, leader of the Jacksonville NAACP Youth Council. Pearson was a man who called himself a man in a hurry. He was pushing integration and pushing the city to move towards integration. Jacksonville native and Clemson University historian Abel Barkley. The civil rights movement from 1960 was basically a struggle between Rutledge Pearson and Hayden Burns to open up the city. Beginning in February 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, blacks, usually local college students, had started sitting in at segregated department store lunch counters. Pearson decided to try the same thing in Jacksonville with his youth council. In Jacksonville, 90% of the sit-ins were high school students. I was president of youth council in ACP at that time at age 16. We sat in at all of the lunch counters in downtown Jacksonville starting in August, and we had enough participants to sit at every seat. Although the city's news media maintained a strict blackout concerning the sit-ins, Hearst and the others could sense pressure was building, especially when a young white man joined the group. After we had done this for two weeks, and after an incident with a white student from Florida State who sat in with us was almost beaten, we think he could have been lynched. That following Saturday, August 27, 1960, we were sitting in in downtown Jacksonville Grant's department store. Mr. Pearson had gotten a report about some strange happenings in the park in downtown Jacksonville. The black students emerged from Grant's just after 12 noon. A few minutes later, the 16-year-old Hearst found himself running for his life. As we came out of that store, we were met by 200 whites with axe handles and baseball bats. And they were running toward us. You know, you couldn't make out in the beginning what they had in their hand. But obviously, as you could see what was happening to other folk, any black who was downtown was being hit. And obviously, we were the object of their affection, as it were. You don't think about harm or danger. Maybe because of youthfulness, maybe it was because of the idealism of wanting to take on this segregation, this racism problem. When you're confronted with this imminent danger, this imminent violence, you have to make pragmatic and real-world adjustments. So the real-world adjustment was to get out of the way and run as fast as you can. Violence continued throughout the day and into the evening across the city. Absent during the beatings, police appeared as blacks began to fight back. The St. Petersburg Times reported more than 70 injured with over 150 arrests. After Axe Handle Saturday, blacks began boycotting Jacksonville's downtown. Later, without the support of the mayor, an unofficial biracial committee was formed. Some lunch counters were integrated, but racial violence continued to plague Jacksonville throughout the decade. Hayden Burns later served one term as governor of Florida. Rutledge Pearson lost his teaching job, ending his days as an organizer for the Laundry Workers Union. People have told me, both publicly and privately, you know, why do we really want to wash our dirty laundry? And why don't we just go on from here? 
because we don't teach classes in high school and in institutions of higher education that say, let's move on from here. We teach classes in American history. So it's important that we know what happened in the past, but we also need to understand the climate, the racial climate of a country based on a Christian ethic that said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but still chose to discriminate against an entire race of people just based on the color of their skin. And that continued up through the 60s, and some say that it continues today. Rodney Hurst, author of It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.